Hey guys, welcome to episode 173 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're doing well and that you're in the mood for some true crime. If you've joined Patreon since our last episode, then keep listening at the end of the show because we're going to thank everyone who has joined recently. And if you want ad-free episodes and two full-length bonus episodes a month, please join us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple or on the Patreon app. Okay, let's get right into this case because this is one that I've really wanted to bring our listeners for some time and it involves our neighbors to the north so our Canadian listeners will be happy to be represented. (laughs) So John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course I am. The case that I have for you today will take us on a scenic road trip from the beautiful Vancouver Island through the majestic Pacific Northwestern state of Washington, with our final destination being Seattle. But somewhere along the way, a wrong turn was taken, and the vast and dense forest around us, once beautiful and intoxicating, will take on a sinister new light. And very quickly, the trip that was supposed to be fun for a young, new couple just beginning to map out their own lives would send them on the path towards their brutal murders because a killer was now following them. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. To start this case, we're going to go back to the fall of 1987 in Saanich, British Columbia, which is located on Vancouver Island. Although today Saanich is considered a very affluent place to live, in the late 1980s it was a mixture between what you would call upper middle class and a rural population. But despite that change, one thing has remained true about the area. It's a beautiful place to call home. By November of 1987, 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg had been dating 20-year-old Jay Cook for about five months. So it was definitely a young love situation. Those are always the best starts, right? Yes. That first few exciting, you know, months. Even though, you know, 12 years in. 12 years strong. Still as exciting. Of course. It better be. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's a joke. The couple had both attended Oak Bay High School, but because they were in different years, they really never hung out or spoke while in high school. It was not until afterwards, when they connected through a mutual friend, that they had gotten together. And that really always happens. I feel like people that never spoke in high school always end up getting married. Yeah, I also think it's true even with friendships as well. Like the people that you just really didn't associate with too much uh, wind up being your friends once you're done. Right. A little more casual. Yeah, sure. So both were very sweet and kind to those that they had in their lives. So it seemed as if they would be a good match for each other as well. Jay was a very handsome young man. He had probably the best hair I've ever seen come out of the 80s. I cannot, I cannot lie. I'm truly jealous of how beautiful it was. And he had kind eyes and a soft smile. He was 6'4", so he was very tall, and his sister said that he had broad shoulders, but because of his height, he was very lanky in his size. Tanya Van Kylenborg had a radiant smile. 
And with the exception of having dirty blonde hair, I think she looked just like Molly Ringwald. And she had like that look about her too. I have to see these pictures at the end. Very pretty in pink. (laughs) So Tanya had just graduated high school. And she had spoken about wanting to maybe become a veterinarian or do something in that field because she truly loved being around animals, especially her family's golden retriever. But for the time, she was really just focused on enjoying life. She had told her parents that she didn't know what she wanted to do yet and that she was really okay with that. And they were okay with it, too, because Tanya's father had followed a similar path and The family said that they were very similar in their personalities. Her father had jumped around from job to job, and then eventually he went to law school and obviously made good for himself. So they were comfortable with Tanya figuring out what she wanted to do. And that was one thing about Tanya that her best friend would later reflect on. She had this great and funny relationship with her father. They would love to joke around and debate each other. It was kind of like their love language. Tanya had an adventurous side. After graduating from high school, she went with a friend to Europe, and she was planning another trip there as well. Jay was kind of the opposite of Tanya, in that he had more of like this laid-back personality. He was always calm and collected. He was quick to laugh off anything, and it was probably why they were attracted to each other. Jay was described as someone who you'd want to be friends with a giving person that would do anything for anyone, and definitely not someone that would ever initiate a fight or want to be involved in a fight. He was kind of described as being very aware, very emotionally intelligent, but also like still an aloof 20-year-old guy at the same time. Right. Which is just the way things are. You know what I mean? Like they... There was one occasion at a party where Jay was really recognizing that one of his friends had consumed too much alcohol and he brought him in the car to the hospital and he actually saved his friend's life from alcohol poisoning. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. But then he also did these like goofy things where like, you know, he wasn't really thinking and it's just, you know, he's so he's on his way to becoming a great man. He's just a 20-year-old boy still, you know? Right. And it's it's it, it almost like begs that question. It's like what really um, encompasses like intelligence, right? When you look at the whole picture, because right. like you said, like, okay, he's a little immature in some areas, but in others, he's a very excelled in his social and emotional growth. Right. So it's, it's, it's not everybody has every element to the word and you know or to have intelligence you know it's a very dynamic thing yeah to be called an intelligent person because you could mean it in many different ways right but both of them had it and they were a beautiful young couple with the world truly in front of them in mid-november jay's father asked him and tanya to go on a trip for him he owned a furnace business and he needed a part picked up He had a customer that needed a furnace bad now that the winter was approaching, and his regular supplier didn't have the parts he needed. The closest supplier, one that he did deal with occasionally, had what he needed, but it was all the way in the States. Ah, okay. So it would get to him faster and cheaper if he was able to pick it up. So we asked the kids if they would be willing to take the family van a 1977 bronze Ford window van, a van, 
But this is a good van, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> to Seattle, Washington to go pick it up. And the couple agreed to do so. The trip itself was just over 100 miles, but it was a bit more time-consuming and complicated because they would have to take two ferries to get there. So the young couple, thinking, you know, this is going to be our first road trip, time out of the country together, they decided to make it like an overnight trip. And this is something that sometimes Jay's father's partner would do with his wife, and he would do the same thing where they would kind of make an excursion out of it. Like they would go stay in the city for the night. Yeah, I'm trying to make fun out of it. Exactly. Yeah. But he was unavailable to do it, so that's why he asked Jay. Wanting to thank them for doing this for him, Jay's father gave the couple money so that they could get a hotel room once they reached Seattle. The plan was for them to leave for Seattle on November 18th, stay there overnight, pick up the parts the following morning, and then make their way back home. So they would be home before dinner time on the 19th. However, instead of using the money on the hotel room, the couple decided that they would just camp in the van to save money and that they could use the money on something else. I mean, that's cool, but I still would have used the money for the hotel. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when you're younger, your back can take sleeping in a van overnight. I mean, I used to love sleeping on the floor, as weird as that sounds. I mean, I would never attempt that now. (laughs) No, it would take months to recover. (laughs) So Jay had packed two foam bedrolls and all of the bedding that he had in his room so that him and Tanya would be comfortable there at night. He also took with him roadmaps, instructions, directions written from his father, six $50 Canadian traveler's checks, another couple hundred dollars in cash, And then finally, a cashier's check for $758.11 for the furnace made out to the supplier in Seattle, which was Jensco Heating. Tanya had with her that day a backpack filled with a change of clothes, toiletries, makeup, and about $60 in Canadian money. She also brought a camera with her so she could remember their trip. And that was something that she loved to do. She loved taking pictures. Jay's sister was home when he left to go pick up Tanya in the late afternoon of November 18th. Jay is the middle child and he has an older sister and a younger sister. And it was his younger sister that was home that day. And actually she had um, stayed home for like she was playing hooky from school. Of course. So that's the reason why she was there. He told her the plan. And that they should be home before dinner the next day. According to her, he was trying to make it out like it was no big deal um, to his younger sister, Laura. But she knew her brother and she knew that it was a big deal to him. First, because this was a big task for him to take on for their father. And the way that it kind of worked for the Cook children is that they really had to take on a lot of responsibilities in the home, but also with their father's business. And maybe this was an opportunity, the first of many opportunities for Jay to get involved in the family business. So it was kind of like dad's trusting me with this. Right. And, and isn't that like always the goal? I mean, I would I would imagine for most people it's to get your, you know, your kids involved in the business to carry it on. So that way you could step back and, you know, and maybe if you're in that retirement rage to, you know, enjoy what you've done, the fruits of your labor and have your kids run it. I feel like that's always a cool thing when you have a family business that's just that's been around forever. Right. To follow the family legacy. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So another reason 
was because he really seemed to be into Tanya more than she had ever seen him kind of be into another girl. And, you know, he really said to his sister at one point that he could see himself being with Tanya a little bit more like long term. Like this wasn't just a fun thing. He really liked being with her. And this was the first time they'd be staying overnight together. I mean, that's that's fun. It's intense. That yeah, is, it's fun. It is fun. So when he left, she waved goodbye to him. And this is kind of a bit of a Cook family tradition, too, is that they wave um, until the car turns down the street. So that's what she did. She waved from out in the street and to her to her brother who was leaving. Shout and, out to my mom because my mom does that. Yes, yeah, she does. <laughs> like from the moment the she's cars leaving. out of the driveway. I'm actually I get nervous about like other cars like <laughs> like maybe hitting her i'm like you got to focus on the road yeah because my mom focuses so much on looking back and saying you know bye you know i'm always thinking like oh no <laughs> yeah well in this case the people that are saying goodbye are the ones waving and then he gave her a honk and a wave once he got to the end of the street but and what's really sad is that that would be the last time that anyone in the cook family ever saw jay alive again that's sad. That's really sad. You know, I was I was going to say obviously this is true crime, so we were we're you're setting the stage. So it is a little alarming when you have these two young people, you know, I mean they're in their 20s, yeah, but I, they are crossing the border. Well, no, Tanya's only 18 years old. Oh, okay. Well, that, even more so, right? So I mean they are crossing a border and even though I'm sure the distance isn't too far, you just never know, you know, you're, you're, you're planning on sleeping in your van. That's uh, a questionable flag for me. You know, you do have a lot of money on you and checks, you know, and things that could be, right. uh, you know, make you a target and you don't know the layout of the land maybe as good as where you're from. No, they definitely don't. And it is going to be obvious that they're from out of more than out of state. They're from out of the country because they have British Columbia license plates on yeah. the van. I mean, that would be the same thing as if we were to go to Canada or another country. We just wouldn't know what, like, how to navigate. It is a little easier now with, like, you know, GPS and things of that nature, but they don't have this. So the target's pretty large. Yeah, I think that's a really good point for you to bring up is the fact that there is no GPS. There's nothing that they can just put in their destination. They're kind of just having to follow the maps and the direction that Jay's father have, has given him. And that's difficult because it's very easy to make a mistake, especially when you don't know the area and they will be, most of their traveling will be done at night. Yeah. That's a little scary. Well, before we get into the journey before their journey begins, we're going to take a break and we are going to talk about the sponsor of today's show factor. Never have we been more excited to be sponsored by a brand than we have for Factor. We've been using Factor for over a year now, and it's completely changed our meal prep game. We've tried a lot of ready-to-eat meal services, and Factor truly has it all. Convenience, options, nutritional value, and most importantly, the best flavor. Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more. 
And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factors restaurant quality meals will help you fuel up fast, like two minutes kind of fast. They are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. The meals are 100% ready to eat, so there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. They have the best value, and not just nutritionally either. When it comes to cost, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and better than takeout because each meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easy. Their deliveries are also flexible for your convenience. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimecouple50 and use code TRUECRIMECOUPLE50 to get 50% off. That's code TRUECRIMECOUPLE50 at factormeals.com slash TRUECRIMECOUPLE50 to get 50% off. Okay, let's get back to the show. So Jay and Tanya took the less direct route to get to Seattle. There's There was an easier way to get to Seattle, but... They decided, just as Jay's father and Jay's father's business partner did, to take the more scenic route because it's nicer. And like you said, you might as well make the most out of it, right? That's true, except that would be your route, and then my route would want to be the more direct one. Yes, we always do this. I always <laughs> take the long scenic route, and John hates it. He gets, he's mad the whole time as I'm enjoying the scenes. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm mad all the time. You're mad the whole time. Okay, maybe a little bit. <laughs> But although it was nicer, it meant that the directions were a little bit more complicated. The first thing they would have to do is they would have to go to the first ferry, which went from Victoria, which is in British Columbia, to Port Angeles in Washington. Once they take that first ferry ride, they would then have to drive 70 miles across four various federal and state highways to get to Bremerton. And if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, guys. I'm from New Jersey. I'm not from Washington. I'm sure everyone would pronounce New Jersey towns wrong, but I'd be okay with it. Okay? So please just give me some grace here. Um, To Bremerton, where they would have to take a second drive on ferry, which would finally bring them to Seattle. So two ferries, and that's a lot of interchanges they would have to make. So again, across 70 miles, they would have to change, switch up highways four times. I mean, that's a lot, especially when you're looking at a map. Yeah, and you could miss a turn. While you're in the dark. Yes. So once there, after they spent the night, they would pick up the furnace, which was located, well, this supply company was located in the industrial district of Seattle. So the couple was seen by several witnesses on the ferry from Victoria to Port Angeles at 4 p.m. It was a beautiful ride in which they were able to watch the sunset. Well, that's cute. Very nice. They docked from that ferry at 5.30 p.m. At this time, it was really easy to go back and forth between borders. 
they only had to show their driver's license to get into the United States. Luckily, the vehicle that they were in was so easy to spot because we have, in this case, a lot of witnesses that explain the movement of the van, not only because Jay and Tanya were very friendly, like affable people whenever they stopped somewhere, but the van was also extremely recognizable. So that's what really allows us to kind of get this idea of how far the couple got in their journey. So when in Port Angeles, the couple stopped at a convenience store and bought some sodas, snacks, and they began their journey on U.S. Highway 101, which would take them across the northern coast of the Olympic Peninsula. Now, this is a very remote part of Washington state, and it's a fun fact that this is the country's longest undeveloped coastline. Really? Yep. Okay. It's home to dark and dense rainforest, mountains, winding rivers, and as you can imagine, it can be unforgiving. And it is here that the couple made a wrong turn. Ah, it's always the wrong turn. Yes. Instead of turning left onto Washington State 104, Jay stayed straight and missed the turn that would have taken him to their second ferry destination and across the Puget Sound, which would take them to Seattle. He would now have to make a very long detour down the peninsula and back up around. But it took him a while to even realize that he had missed the turn. So it wasn't until nightfall that he and Tanya understood that they were actually, in fact, driving away from their destination. That's always the worst. See, that's why I do love GPS, right? Because it does keep you on a on a good path, you know? Yeah, we're lucky. And even though it's annoying sometimes when it's like rerouting, <laughs> I'd rather that than being completely lost. Well, and not knowing for a long time that you're, ta- you're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So the couple made the choice to stop at another convenience store in Hoodsport, Washington. There they asked where they were and how they could reach the Canal Bridge, which was the only way to get to the ferry. The clerk told them that they were past the turn. The clerk told Jay, who she described as upset with himself for making the mistake, that he was better off not turning around at this point and just driving further south and then making his way back up to the canal through a shorter route. So basically making like the completing the U that he would have had to make instead of going backwards. Okay. The woman would remember Jay and the way that he explained the purpose of his trip Jay did do this at the convenience stores that they stopped at or the gas stations. He would explain, like, why he was going to Seattle. So that's how these people remembered him and remembered Tanya. It's almost like he left his mark a little bit. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And it was a good one. Then, in turn, the clerk remembered that Jay was listening to her because Jay had a baseball cap on. And it was a unique baseball cap. And she mentioned that. Her son would love that because he collects baseball caps. And as she was talking about her son and his collection, she said that Jay was so kind and respectful and listened to everything she had to say, but didn't just listen, seemed interested in it. And that's like rare. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a people pleaser slash, you know, just he loves conversation. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I can uh, I could really get in the mind of him because I feel like I'm a little similar in that regard. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. He was patient and kind. 
And she also remembered seeing Tanya shopping the aisles for snacks. And all the while, she, as most late night convenience store workers are trained to do, kept an eye on someone else. She remembered also seeing a man in his 20s wearing a brown raincoat. He, like the couple, was not from the area because she didn't know him as a local, and she knew all the locals. But unlike the couple, he was not friendly. The couple bought snacks and sodas, and once they exited the store, the man in the raincoat followed them. He left when they left, and he had purchased nothing. That's very strange. Now, this we are unsure about, but there are two other witnesses— a man and his adult daughter. They had been in the store looking for a video to rent because this is back in the time when like our video rentals were also at convenience stores. So when they were about to leave, they noticed that the bronze van had pulled up behind their car. So this meant that they couldn't back out. And the daughter said she remembered all of this because she was, and these are her words, she was a bit pissed off about it. Like, I'm trying to leave, but I can't because this van's blocking us in. Tanya came running back into the store and said that they needed a receipt for their travel expenses. So the clerk, not having paper for the register, like physically was writing out the receipt. And that's why the van was parked there temporarily. When later questioned by the police, the father stated that he saw a third person in the van with them in the back. So was it possible that they might have picked up a hitchhiker? Right. His daughter would tell police that as she was like getting into the car because they were about to pull off, that she saw that Jay was driving, but he was looking straight and he wasn't talking. But Tanya was in the front passenger seat and she was talking, but it seemed like her head was turned a bit over her shoulder. So they're thinking, was she talking to someone in the back of the van? Had they chosen to give this man a ride, potentially? Is that why he was loitering in the store? Now, this isn't outside the realm of possibility because it is 1987. And Jay is known to pick up hitchhikers because he believed it was the friendly thing to do. And it might have been something a little bit safer to do where he lived. But now he's in a different country and it might not have been the best choice. But we don't know if this is true because we do see the couple. The couple is seen later on by people and they don't indicate there's a third person with them. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to say or we could just we could make a second kind of observation that maybe it was something where he said, could I have a ride? And maybe he, you know, was like, "Ah, I'm not comfortable with this. And it's possible it could have been held by gunpoint, possibly. You never know. Something could have been used to get get his get whoever this person is in the back, let's say. Well, then I think that when Tanya went running back in for the receipt, she would have said, like, somebody's holding us. Unless she didn't know when it happened while she went to go get the receipt. Well, the daughter was saying that she was talking to the person in the back seat. I see. Okay. So there, a third possibility is that maybe they did offer this guy a ride and it wasn't nefarious and then he just dropped him off. Right. But it's interesting that we know that, that that took mm-hmm. place. That is a little strange. Right. But those are the only two people that said they saw a third person in the van with Jay and Tanya. Right. And I'm thinking it couldn't have been like a long distance because they obviously need to go to sleep and they're not going to sleep in the van with some dude in it. 
You and know? they are seen other places. Right. So after leaving that store, they headed south as the clerk suggested. But to be certain that they were on the right path, they pulled into another roadside store, which was 30 minutes from the last one at 9 p.m. This is smart. He's continuing to ask for directions. Smart man. They asked the clerk if they were on the right path to Bremerton. And she told them that they were. But to be helpful, she went over the correct route with Jay again, just to be sure that he stayed on the right track. See, we're nice in the United States, too. Sometimes. We can be. (laughs) The clerk noted that while Jay was happy and talkative, Tanya seemed tired and as if she had just awoken from a nap because she also had impressions on her face. Like, you know, like when you sleep into a pillow and you get those lines on your face. But this is something that I think is interesting because I think it indicates that there wasn't a third person with them. Like maybe the father and daughter were mistaken from the other convenience store from earlier in the day. Because I don't think that an 18-year-old girl, and this is just my conjecture. This is just my theorizing. As an 18-year-old girl, I wouldn't feel comfortable if we pitched picked up a hitchhiker, and then I'm not going to take a nap. That is true. Unless it just didn't happen or it was a very brief pickup and drop off. Correct. So I think that that's the case. I yeah. think that the when they got to the second convenience store at 9 p.m., there was not a third person with them. The clerk had written down the number of the license plate. And the reason for this was because Jay had initially tried to pay her in the traveler's check But she said she wasn't comfortable with him paying with the traveler's check. So he said, okay, let me go back to the van. I have cash on on me. But she wrote down the license plate in case he, like, tried to just go. Okay. So that's why she had initially written down his license plate. But he did return with the cash. And another reason why she really remembered him was because when he did leave, he ended up leaving the traveler's checks there. Oh, man. Yeah. Six $50 traveler's checks. That's terrible. I know. So she said, this clerk, that they were in good spirits, just annoyed because they had made a wrong turn, and they were eager to get to where they wanted to be. Now, when the clerk noticed that he had left his checks, she went to, like, run after them to try and, like, like, you forgot your checks, but he had already left. The couple, despite making the wrong turn and doubling the miles that they had to do, made the final ferry ride to Bremerton. Okay, so they got there. Yeah, and they just got there because the ferry was supposed to leave at 1025. They bought their tickets. Their tickets were stamped at 1016. Okay, so just a little bit of time to spare. (laughs) They just made it. From this point, we're unclear about what happened. The ferry that they purchased the tickets for was set to leave at 1025 p.m., the last ferry of the day. However, no witnesses saw them on the ferry. But if they didn't board, then why would they have bought the tickets? But this is definitely a van that people would remember. So all we know is that the van eventually makes it to this Seattle side. So the investigators believe that they did board the ferry and the reason why people don't remember seeing it was because they boarded late. So it was probably the last on, the first to leave, and that they might have not left the van. No. Let me just get this straight. It's a ferry where cars go on. Yes, both correct? of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did 
the car did this van get now get moved from the ferry to to land? Like when it docked into Seattle, right? It must have at some point because eventually the van is going to be okay. found on that. But side. nobody saw them. Nobody do, saw okay. them specifically, like they had on the first ferry ride. Okay. But like I said, that might be explained by the fact that they were on late, and then if they're the last to be let on, they're also the first to leave. Yeah, this is very intriguing. But yeah, I mean, if they, if the tickets were stamped, they obviously went on it because then the van would have had to been taken off before the the ferry went back. Right. So either they no one saw them and they moved it onto land, or somebody did. Right. You know, because there's no way. You know what I mean? The tickets were bought. They had to get well, on it. They and the van would be found on the Seattle side. Okay. So I think that there's no reason why the two of them would have bought tickets without taking this ride. I think there just weren't a lot of witnesses because of the timing. I think we're just used to so far in this case that everything pretty much was recorded from by so many eyewitnesses right. from the beginning of their journey till uh, they at least get to this port. So I think we're used to that. We're getting a little spoiled. <laughs> yeah. So we think it's weird when it hasn't been. But Correct. Yeah. So... None the wiser to the couple's traveling mishaps were their families. Both the Cook and Van Kylenborg families were expecting to get a call for a check-in on the 18th, but those calls never came. The following morning, the couple was supposed to have been at the Jensko Heating Company to pick up the furnace right when it opened, but they never showed up. The families of Jay and Tanya thought that the couple would call soon with news that they were on their way home. Maybe the day before they'd gotten caught up in wanting to make the best out of being in Seattle. But that call never came. And when the time came and went that the couple was supposed to have been home, they got worried. Calls were made by both families to the friends of the couple, but they hadn't heard from them either. Jay's father called the heating supply company and they said that no one came to pick up the parts that he needed. The families that had never even met each other were now linked by the fear that something bad had happened to their children. On the night of November 19th, the day that they were supposed to have returned, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, were notified that Jay and Tanya were missing. The claims were taken seriously right away. And because the couple had been on their way to Seattle, the Washington State Police were also notified. All sheriff's departments in Washington State were sent a be on the lookout by the state police for a description of both the couple and the van that they had been driving. Okay. Well, at least it uh, looks like they're already starting to work close uh, with each other here to figure out what's going on. They are. While the police on both sides of the border were searching for the couple— the families joined in on the search. Tanya's father had a friend who owned a small airplane. Obviously, that's convenient for island living, so that's why he had it. And he agreed to fly up and down the Olympic coast with him to see if they could find signs of the van or the couple amongst the wilderness. But unfortunately, they found nothing. For six days, the search for the couple, which included the family members who made their way to the States, went on without any sign of them until a gruesome discovery was found in rural Skagit County in Washington. Now, when a be on the lookout was sent out for the teens and their van, things were taken very seriously. 
But law enforcement officers in Washington, because as of late, the Pacific Northwest seemed to be a hunting ground for this new concept in the American psyche, which was the serial killer. Um, it was very prevalent. I mean, within the Pacific Northwest, Washington specifically, you have Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer. The residents and law enforcement alike were nervous that when they heard news that a couple that was on a road trip went missing, they were nervous that they had another serial killer on their hands. So the Washington state police and the sheriff's departments were very vigilant about looking for the couple. The families, it's hard because the families were very vocal about feeling like they felt that law enforcement wasn't looking for them. Okay. But then you hear a different story from the other side. So we don't know what is the truth. Yeah, we really don't. I'm sure it's somewhere in the middle. Not to make a joke of this, but I feel like I just need to say it. There's something about Washington that just scares me. Nothing, you know, guys, if you live in Washington, that's cool. I'm not saying anything about you. It's a beautiful place. It's beautiful. It's great. But I just think I'm going to like die to a serial serial killer or I'm going to meet like the grizzly bear. No, I'm I'm going to meet like Bigfoot or I'm going to like find vampires like in Twilight that live up in the mountains of Seattle. Like I just like. Well, it's funny because Forks is in the Olympic Peninsula. I it's just weird. (laughs) It's just too wilderness for me. There's I I just feel like something's going to happen if I go there. It's like it has this like uh this like vibe about it. I guess it's cuz it's like I guess it's rainy there a lot and it's like cold, I guess. I don't know. I didn't know you felt so passionately about the Pacific Northwest. Like I I think Washington would just not be a place that I go. Okay. We'll take that off the bucket list. Yeah, it's yeah, I'm I'm not You're nervous going. about it. Unless I have a friend there and I am I have like a guide, you know, then maybe. <laughs> if we have a guide. If we have a Pacific Northwest guide, you'll visit. Maybe. Okay. Like, I won't go there just being like, hey, let's go on a road trip. Not happening. Okay. I understand. Well, this is going to deter you from wanting to do that as well. You're probably right. Well, eventually, six days after the search began, the body of Tanya Van Kylenborg was found. Oh, no. The man who found Tanya's body on November 24th was walking along a deserted county road known as Parsons Creek Road looking for cans and bottles when he came to a site that would haunt him for the rest of his life. As he was searching, he saw what looked like a human body at the bottom of an autumn leaf-filled embankment. Once he got close enough to confirm that it was the body of a person and not something else, he ran to the nearest home and told them that he needed to use their phone. He breathlessly reported that he had found a body. A Skagit County Sheriff's deputy arrived at the scene at 11 a.m. Once he confirmed that this was indeed a human body, the detectives and a crime scene team was called to the area. While the deputy was waiting for everyone to come to the scene, he saw by his feet that there were two zip ties. He thought that they might be involved with the body below, so he didn't pick them up because he did not want to contaminate the crime scene. Smart man. Yeah. Well, they see the thing about the Washington law enforcement is that it was kind of drilled into their head, especially after a Green River killer, that they should not be contaminating the crime scene because it's very important for the collection of evidence. Of course. 
The white zip ties had been locked in place, but were either ripped or cut open. So they were locked, but they were cut at a weaker area. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. As he observed the body that was slowly being covered by the falling leaves from the towering trees that surrounded them, he became convinced that the victim had been restrained by the zip ties. The reason why he thought this was because the hands of the victim rested over the groin area, but not in a way that was natural. The backs of her hands were joined and her fingers were splayed. Now, he had seen that position before many times when he had suspects handcuffed. That's a very interesting clue. Right. So her hands must have been in zip ties in front of her when rigor mortis set in. And then when the killer went to leave this body, they cut the zip ties off. But because rigor had set in, the body didn't move. Right. So it's kind of almost got like locked in that position. Exactly. I understand. Okay. And that must also mean that this was not where she was killed. Right. When the detectives and crime scene analysts arrived at the scene, they observed that the body was that of a teenage girl. Now, at first, they thought that the victim was wearing white pants, but it turned out that she was not wearing pants at all. Um, and another thing was that they, because her hair was short, they at first weren't sure if it was a male or female victim. Once the crime scene team gets there and they're able to go down the embankment, they're able to get like a clearer picture of what was happening. They noted that they believed that she had been unbound at the top of the embankment and then pushed down because of the disturbance in the ground and the lack of footprints surrounding the body. Her body had been stopped by a metal pipe, and that's where she lay to rest. Their victim was naked from the waist down, except for a pair of thick gray woolen socks with a red stripe around the top portion. Her legs had stayed together during the roll down the hill, which led them to believe, same as with her hands and wrist, that she had been bound and then rigor set in, and when her body rolled, she never left the position she was bound in. Because usually if someone's like rolled down a hill, their legs will be splayed when they come to rest. Right, because you kind of flail as you're going down any kind of embankment or hill or anything. Correct, and right. same with your arms. Right. But her arms stayed together and so did her legs. So the, most wow. likely the zip ties were holding her together. For some reason, the person cut the zip ties and then rolled her down. They cut the zip ties and then left them there, which is strange. See, I don't think it's that strange, actually. I think that I think from what we just learned, I think there's a lot to, to understand. I think one... This person, whoever it is, definitely knows the the area very well. Okay. Just, you know, because, I mean, I'm sure, he, you know, whatever's going to take place next, whatever we're going to learn, you're going to need time to commit murder. You're going to need a place that's very secluded and you know the area well. That's one. Two, I think that the person actually knows techniques that he's learned over other times of doing this. Either that or this person's law enforcement. So it's either some kind of law enforcement or corrections, or this person has done this multiple times to other victims. So this okay. isn't his first time. Yeah, I'm just saying that I think it's weird that they would go through the effort of cutting off the zip ties 
and then leaving them there. You would think they cut off the zip ties because they'd want to take with them anything that could connect them to the crime in some way, but they decided to just leave them at the top of the embankment. I agree with you. Like, I could see, like, I understand, like, okay, cutting them off the victim, maybe they didn't want them to know how they were bound, right? But right. then why not pick them up and take them with you? Why leave them on the floor? That part I don't understand. That's odd. Yeah. Yeah. So they looked for anything to ID her with, but there was no purse or any personal belongings around her. She wore jewelry, two watches, a man's and a woman's. They checked the watches for engravings, but there was nothing. She wore a black friendship bracelet, but no names were on it. The only evidence they could find of who she could possibly be was a tiny child-sized ring that was now too small for her to wear, and it was fastened to a chain around her neck. On it was the script letter T for Tanya, but they just don't know yet that this is who they found. When her body was finally moved after the scene had been processed, The cause of death was obvious to the observers. A single gunshot wound to the back of the victim's head. Because of the lack of blood or blood spatter at the scene, they determined that this had not been the location of her murder. Because they had not yet identified her body as Tanya's, she was sent in for the autopsy as Jane Doe. As the site of discovery of Tanya's body was being processed, The second of four crime scenes would need to be processed in the case was found. About 15 miles away, behind a popular dive bar known as Essie's Tavern, outside of a Greyhound bus stop in Bellingham, items were found that would later relate to the crime. While a handyman for a bar, who was usually paid in beer, was cleaning out the back parking lot, found a wallet, which belonged to Tanya beneath the back porch. The tavern owner didn't know of the importance of this discovery and placed the cards in an envelope. She was going to mail them to Tanya Van Kylenborg. However, she didn't know how many stamps she would need to get something to British Columbia, so she decided to put the envelope aside for for now. Huh, that's very interesting. Yes, and it's funny because both scenes were truly discovered at the same time the woman from Essie's tavern just didn't understand the importance yet yet of- okay dumb question I, I know i'm gonna get roasted for this one a tavern are you talking about a bar like a bar yeah like a, like a bar restaurant like yes okay all right you don't know what a tavern is <laughs> i don't are know are you okay today <laughs> no i'm not okay no because like all right i don't know dumb question see but i it wasn't no 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 such thing as dumb questions you're uh, yes a bar like he gets paid in beer, John. I mean, that's that's pretty good if you're into that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> okay. So that. like a tavern, yeah, tavern, restaurant, bar. Okay, cool. All right, now I understand. Okay. Now, any other questions? No, I think that, <laughs> that's it. I think, <laughs> think my good? question limits up today. Now, okay. Now, because the Skagit County Sheriff's Department had gone through their missing persons, and they couldn't find anyone that met their Jane Doe's description, they turned to that be on the lookout that had been placed for the couple. And they saw that their victim resembled the described female. It was for that reason that they contacted the RCMP, who in turn contacted the Van Kylenborg family. Tanya's father, along with her brother, drove to the morgue because they were already in Washington State searching for her. So they were 
pretty close. They confirmed that that was Tanya. Tanya's older brother would later describe that moment. He said that the family was dumbstruck with grief, that they couldn't process that what had happened was real, that she was gone. From the ways that she had been described, it seemed that Tanya was so very full of life. And I can only imagine that that made it all the more difficult to comprehend that that person that they were seeing in the morgue was her and that that had been taken from her because the discovery of her body was rough. And, you know, the description that was given in the book that I read about this was just, I can't imagine a father and brother identifying their daughter and sister that way. That's really hard. Yeah. But as the Skagit, I, I, I am probably saying that wrong. Skagit? County. I'm sure. Sorry, we'll, guys. I'm sure yeah. we'll get we'll, a few. You we'll know, get, I'm we'll, sure we'll get a few. We'll know. But as the Skagit County Sheriff's shifted their investigation, they began to start looking at the murder of Tanya Van Kylenborg. Her boyfriend and his van were nowhere to be found. That's bizarre. Right. So we have to think about this in the context of law enforcement trying to figure out what's happening. The body of Tanya has been found. Jay in the van still missing, which is, of course, going to lead them to believe, even if just for a tiny second, that maybe he had been the one to commit this murder. I mean, I guess at first glance, I I guess maybe you would suspect him just because, you know, we always suspect the boyfriend or husband right. first. And isn't it just easier for law enforcement if it was true? Because that means an outsider did it. Case closed. No more serial killers in the Pacific Northwest. We can rest easy. Right. So initially, that is what they were thinking. But luckily, we're dealing with some seasoned detectives who knew that the quickest and easiest way out of an investigation isn't always the true true or right way. I like these guys. So they would wait to speak with the families. Because if Jay wasn't the killer, that meant that most likely they had another body to find. Right. I, I think that your radar for that theory doesn't really go off until, you know, we find out where his body is, if there even is one, or if we could find him. I mean, if they find Jay's body, then we know, obviously, that that's not the case. Correct. And we're dealing with something a little bit more serious, or way more serious here. Right. But first, they still have to question the families. The Cook family was called and informed of the discovery of Tanya's body. And they were questioned about the relationship that their son had with her. The Cook family, Jay's sisters included, said that they had a good relationship, that they were getting closer. They were horrified at the implication that Jay had anything to do with any of this. It just wasn't in his personality to even initiate a fight let alone commit murder. They were then asked if maybe he was upset at the fact that Tanya was going to leave for Europe without him. And maybe she wasn't ready for a serious relationship yet. And this kind of stems from the fact that when law enforcement was kind of talking to the people in the periphery of the lives of Tanya and Jay, Tanya's one friend is going to say that Tanya was planning a trip to Europe later on, um, a few months down the road and that she wanted she was going to Europe by herself and that she was excited for this trip and that she 
didn't know if she was ready for a serious relationship, but that it, that was kind of a few months down the road. And but she really did love Jay. So she was a little conflicted about that situation. So I think that they're kind of seeing if they can they they want to ask every question possible. So is this the one problem that existed within this new relationship? Depending on the people that we're talking about. And I think in this case, I think Jay was very laid back and cool. Mm-hmm. I think, especially with Tanya, I don't think, I think that their relationship would have survived any kind of test of distance or anything like that that would have even happened if she did go, which which what I'm trying to get at is it wouldn't have made him feel any way at all. Yeah, he seems like a laid back, level headed person. Right. I don't think he would ever feel like, why are you leaving me or any kind of weird um, control or or feeling well, weird about it. It's interesting you put it that way because that's kind of the way his parents and his sisters responded. They denied that he would have been upset with her or murdered her over something like that. And that would have been his reaction. It would have been you do what you want to do with yourself and you have fun. Right. And when you come back, we will reconvene. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And I want to note here, too, that from the very start, of this investigation, like from the point that Tanya's body was found, that the Van Kylenborgs never believed that Jay harmed their daughter. Like both families emphatically have said that th- there was no time in which there was even this part of doubt. That's really good, though, because yes. that keeps that unit strong because they Correct. need to be for one another. I mean, both of them now are dealing with the possibility that both their children are dead. Exactly. And what's interesting is the two families, even though their kids were dating, they hadn't met each other yet, right? It was still so new. But despite the fact that the families didn't believe Jay was involved, that didn't answer the question of where Jay or the van was. Well, early that following day, the newspapers and news channels in the greater Seattle area were describing the discovery of Tanya's body off of Parsons Creek Road. One of the people who was watching one of the news broadcasts was the woman from Essie's Tavern, which is a bar. Thank you. You're welcome. Who had found Tanya's wallet from the day before, as well as later on keys and ammunition. But we'll get there. Okay. She knew the name Van Kylenborg because she remembered it because she remembered thinking that's an unusual last name. So... She had evidence that was going to help with a murder investigation. That's cool. Yeah. So she immediately calls the Bellingham police. The police arrived at the scene and found more items that were related to Tanya at the scene in a five-gallon bucket. More cards that belonged to her, as well as two zip ties, identical to the ones found at the scene on Parsons Creek Road. The van's keys latex surgical gloves, and a full ammunition box containing 14 380 silver-tipped Winchester Western cartridges. Okay. A black clutch bag and the lens cap that belonged to the camera that Tanya owned. Now, this is all found... Behind Essie's Tavern. Okay. And finally, there was a piece of paper with instructions for Jay that had been written by his father. That's sad. So this finally solidified for investigators that Jay had not been involved in Tanya's murder. The fact that the keys were there 
and the zip ties and the gloves. It all made it seem like this had been an attack that was premeditated by another party. Right. So you're telling me those so now those gloves are not anybody's gloves, like not our victims' gloves. No. This is the whoever did this. Correct. Okay. Stop for a second. I'm getting this feeling I deep in my stomach right now. Okay. I I can answer your question. Which you one? asked me why would you why would they cut the um zip ties off and leave them and leave them and okay. I think I have the answer for you. Okay. It's the same reason as why you would leave the gloves uh, behind the tavern slash bar. You're confident and you want them to find it. He's playing right. games. Okay. I think that that's what's going on here. Like he's kind of leaving these scatterings of. He's maybe trying to confuse investigators. I don't know. I don't think he's trying to confuse him. I think he's he's overly confident, and I think that he's trying to like, you know, like put the carrot on a stick, you know, and like like lead them along, kind of. Okay. Like, oh, you found this, but you're not going to catch me. Oh, you found that, but you're not going to get me like that. He's taunting them. I see. That is like classic, like taunting police behavior. Okay. He wants them to find that crap because he thinks that they're not going to make the connections that they might make. I see. You know what I mean? Well, after processing the scene and securing all the evidence that had been found in the back of the tavern, a forensic investigator was going to bring it directly to Skagit County investigators. He wanted to transport it himself as to not break the chain of custody. Well, as he was driving away from the tavern, he saw it. The van. No. Okay. Yes. All right. That's the, good. The van was discovered one block east of the tavern. It was locked in a blue diamond parking lot located at State and Holly Streets. This was the third crime scene that, w- that would need to be processed. Like imagine he's like, okay, on my way, job done. Nope. Oh, whole new job. You have to now process this crime scene. And the van was like, a doozy of a crime scene to investigate. So now, was it a parking lot? Yes, it was um, a parking lot, like a Blue Diamond parking lot for like kind of like a bus depot because it was right outside of the Greyhound bus uh, terminal stop. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and then what was the distance? Uh, is it like a One large block from the tavern to where the van was? No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I should have specified. Okay. I'm trying to say. No, like, I cut you off. The, sorry. <laughs> obviously, we don't know where Jay's body is yet, but the van in prox- proximity to to the to the girl's to body to, where Tanya's, to body Tanya's body was body. found. Yeah, um, it's about 20 minutes. Okay. All right. So it's not. I mean, like where all of this was found was about 20 minutes north of where Tanya's body was found. Okay. Okay. So after canvassing the area of where the van was parked and speaking with people that worked or lived around the area. It was determined that the van had been parked at that location since November 21st, our anniversary. How nice. Yes, that's true. Again, it was good that the vehicle was unique because the police had a lot of witnesses that they could work with and they could corroborate the stories of. So the van had been there since the 21st. When the van was opened, it was clear that there had been a violent struggle inside. Inside, they found the tickets to the two ferries and all of the gas station receipts. 
And that helped the investigators really piece together a timeline for the couple and be able to also stop at those locations and question the people that had been there that day. They also found most of their belongings in the van and the wrappers and cans of the things that they had purchased along the way. However, everything was strewn about the van. One of the backpacks, Tanya's, had been upended and its contents were all over the place. Among Tanya's belongings that were everywhere was about a half a dozen wrapped tampons. Um, because she brought these on the journey with her, it's we can presume that she was menstruating at the time. And there was also, and I know, sorry, um, but there was a used tampon that had been discarded by the rear of the van. And although an autopsy had not been done yet, um, it was actually being completed as this scene was being searched. The investigators had surmised that Tanya had been sexually assaulted because she was found naked from the waist down. And below her jacket and shirt, her bra had been lifted above her breast. So was this used tampon evidence that her attacker had discarded it and sexually assaulted her in the van? Is this where her attack took place? Um, I would say there's a high possibility of that, if, especially if we have evidence in the van. You know right, what I mean? Because a girl is not going to just do that. No. In the van with her boyfriend, just throw a tampon in the back. But that That's also not what happened. No, but that also means that, I mean, Jay wouldn't have sat idly by. So that means that wherever Jay's body is or whatever happened, he had to have been taken out first for this to take place in the van. Correct. So uh, until we know where or, his body is. Or disposed, in, left indisposed, you know. Right, exactly. And really this sinister picture of what happened to this couple is beginning to emerge and it's getting terrifying. Now, because that was found and they are in communication with the people that found Tanya's body. So they're now thinking that maybe the sexual assault happened in the van. The crime scene analysts have to be even more careful with their forensic analysis of the van. Absolutely. Also in the van was a pair of panties that had been snagged by a zip tie. And near that were four zip ties all connected to each other to form like a single large loop. Like he interconnected zip ties, I think, to hold her body against something or him or Jay in place. Something. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. There was also a large comforter that had blood on it. Inside the wrapped up comforter was a pair of black women's pants. The pants were inside out, and on one of the legs, there appeared to be a large white stain. Later, that stain would be determined to be semen. After the van was completely scoured with literally a fine tooth comb and fingerprints were taken, it was determined that there were hundreds of prints that were lifted from the van. That's, that's a hundreds. Lot. Wow. Okay. They were able to exclude all but one single palm print. Like Interesting. All the other prints belonged to either Tanya, Jay, or the Cook family. But there was a single palm print on the exterior of the vehicle that could not be identified. Now, that's hard because we do know that the gloves were used in the commission of this crime. That's true. Also, you also have to keep in mind that other than the Cook family, there could be other workers that used the van 
um, in, you know, in no, doing work. No, this was a family van. It's not a okay. work van. Oh, it's a family van. Yes. Okay. But it's just used for the transport sometimes. I'm just saying it could be hard. I mean, even though you can grab a print off of something, it could be hard to determine necessarily when that print was left. Right. But that's just what they found Okay, from going through the van. Yeah, yeah. While the scene was being processed, the investigators received the information that they had learned during Tanya's autopsy. Her cause of death was determined to be a gunshot wound to her head. Because there was gunpowder residue embedded in her wound and her scalp, they knew that the gun had either been pressed against her head or within two inches of it. She'd been shot execution style. Because there had been no exit wound, this meant that the bullet was still in her skull. That's so sad. The bullet that was recovered was consistent with a 380 Western Winchester silver-tipped cartridge. So the same as the ammunition that was found at Essie's Tavern. Right. So that belonged to the killer. What makes it worse is that that ammunition, it's it's a hollow point bullet. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that upon impact, it flattens, which is going to cause the most tissue damage possible. Yeah. So you want to destroy what you're shooting with a hollow point. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's uh, pressed up against your head. I mean... So Tanya had not been beaten, and the marks from her being restrained were minimal. But this is most likely because the zip ties were probably placed over her clothing. A rape kit was performed. The examiner had found faint parallel scratches on her inner thighs, but there was no tearing of the soft tissue. However, semen had been detected from both the vaginal and anal swabs that had been taken. Oh, my God. But I think that this is important because this has happened in other cases, too, where um, a victim is saying that they had been raped or that we have a victim who it may have looked like they were sexually assaulted. But upon an autopsy, there is no soft tissue damage or soft tissue tearing. And I think this case proves that there doesn't need to be soft tissue damage or tearing for a rape to have occurred. Right. And I think that's important to to put out there. That's not always the, an indication of rape. Tess would later show that the semen from the swabs and her pants did not belong to Jay. That's important. So both in the anal, vaginal, and pants, those all three of those did not belong to Jay. They belonged to one person, which they deemed... Um, they, they named them Individual A. That was the name that they gave this person. Now, because of the time that Tanya had been exposed to the elements, it was very difficult to determine the time of death. But it was determined to be anywhere from the 19th to the 21st of November. And that also paints a horrible picture because did she have to spend hours or days with this man? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Um so that's interesting because when did they get when did they, when were they on the ferry and then landed the, the night, last time the night of the 18th okay so that would that would that indicate I know this is a little speculation obviously because I have no idea but would you think there's a possibility that the way that he picked up a hitchhiker potentially at that first rest at uh, that one rest stop where there was witnesses of that right. or claim that 
Is it possible to suggest that if he did it once, if someone was in need, he'd do it again? I think there's two very strong possibilities that first they might have potentially picked up a hitchhiker or they had got over to the Seattle side. They'd kind of found somewhere eventually to park the van and to go to sleep and they were interrupted by this person. Yeah, it's possible. I'm just thinking like maybe that's... Well, they weren't driving anywhere once they got to the other side of the sound. So that's what kind of made investigators think they didn't pick up a hitchhiker because they weren't going anywhere. So what's the point of well, driving someone somewhere? But somebody could have... The plan was for them to go to sleep because they had to be there early the next morning. They could have enjoyed Seattle more if they didn't make that wrong turn. Right. I see. I see what you're saying. So, yeah, I mean, maybe somebody did while you know try to get into the van or got into the van when they were sleeping yeah right saw the license plates from further away it's possible yeah and obviously you wouldn't want to sleep with all the windows closed because you know you can't you do want that some air. you yeah. need some air so i mean you'd potentially have a a window open on a car so someone could get in if they wanted to right the possibilities unfortunately are are endless that's true because the van showed up in the parking lot on the 21st the detectives knew that they were looking at the couple being held captive and brutalized. It was a very disturbing picture of what was emerging about the last days, their last days on earth. And this was very difficult for the families to have to hear. Because they had the receipts from the stores, gas stations, and ferries in the car, the investigators traced back the steps of the couple and talked to everyone who might have seen them. And as you know from what I told you about their journey, many people remembered them. And that's how they pieced together the journey that I told you about in the beginning of the episode. Now, they had to figure out where things had gone terribly wrong. And still, they had to find out where Jay was. Right. Yeah, we don't even know where he is. The second question would be answered the following day on Thanksgiving, two days after the discovery of Tanya's body. Two men were out hunting early in Snohomish County. Why are these counties' names so hard? You're doing in your best. S- okay, I'm doing my best. Two men were out hunting early in Snohomish County. They were about 70 miles from where the body of Tanya had been found. The man's hunting dog was the first to come upon something just beneath what was called High Bridge. Whatever the hunting dog had seen unsettled her, and she returned to her owner's side, not wanting to approach. When he got closer, he saw that it was the body of a young man, only slightly younger than himself. The man who found Jay was only 24 years old, and he has spoken about how traumatic this event was for him. Um, Jay's body was partially covered by a blanket, And it looked at first, like upon first glance, you'd think, oh, that might be a homeless person sleeping. But what he saw, the the little skin that he could see poking out from underneath the blanket was gray. He said that nobody looks like that. Um, The body of Jay Cook had been found. The fourth crime scene had been discovered, and it revealed to the investigators what happened to Jay Cook. The injuries that the calm and always friendly Jay had suffered at the hands of his killer were brutal and plentiful. 
Investigators revealed that Jay had been battered and hurt in ways that would be considered torture. His death, like Tanya's brutal sexual assaults, had not been quick. Jay was wearing a shirt, faded blue jeans, and high-top sneakers. His shirt was covered in blood, blood that had come from the beating his head had taken. He had been beaten in the head with a blunt object. The extensive wounds covered by his blood-soaked and matted hair. His face had sustained a brutal attack and had swelled. But it had not been the beating that had caused his death. Red ligature marks were angry around his neck. And whatever had made that mark was still wrapped around it. But it was difficult to see because of the position of his body and the blanket. But once the medical examiner arrived, the body was moved slightly, so the neck and throat could be better seen. And it was then that they saw what it was. Two red dog collars and strands of twine had been woven together to form a makeshift garrote that had been used to strangle him. They noticed also that when he was moved, that something was in his mouth. Later, during the autopsy, it was discovered that halfway down his throat, the killer or killers had shoved a tissue and a pack of Camel Light cigarettes. That is insane. Yeah. Oh, my God. Same as Tanya, because he was exposed to the elements for so long, it was impossible to determine the exact time of death. Instead, an estimate was given, and it matched the estimate of Tanya's death anywhere from the 19th to the 21st. The autopsy would conclude that although the injuries sustained to Jay's head were serious, that the cause of death had been asphyxiation from strangulation and blocked airways from the cigarettes. When Jay was found, he had no identification on him. So when he was brought in, he was also brought in as a John Doe. The following day, the investigators from Skagit County heard about the discovery and drove the hour and a half to see if it was Jay. Using the picture that the Cook family had provided for them, they believed that it was him. So they requested fingerprints and dental records after the autopsy so that the Cooks didn't have to drive out and make that in, that um, identification. I mean, that was that was a smart idea. Yeah. After the crime scenes were all connected, the scene where Jay's body had been found was searched again because now they know it's a part of a larger murder investigation. There they found more zip ties, like the ones in the van. Um, There was a total of eight zip ties all hooked together. So I think that's what he was using to kind of confine Jay. They also found several stones that had blood and pieces of scalp and hair stuck to them. So he was beaten with rocks. I mean, that's that's really bad. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's interesting that, like, rocks were used because it's all... It's well, they think now all the extensive head wounds were to the back of his head. So it was like while this person was strangling him, they were most likely kind of lifting him up and hitting his head against the rocks underneath him. Wow. That is so brutal. Oh. With all of that shoved down his throat. Yeah, that's really bad. But now, and what's interesting is that Tanya's body was found 70 miles away. So the question is, this is very odd, right? Is where 
was Jay killed first and then Tanya was held captive for days? And this happened or did it all kind of happen at once very quickly? Like there's so many, even though they're getting answers, there's so many unanswered questions that still to this day remain unanswered. It is interesting, right? But it's almost like a weird triangle because you have where the van's found, where her body is, and then where Jay's body is. Correct. I think, I'll just quickly tell you what I think. I think that whoever did this had them in the van, drove out to a secluded location where the hunters, think about it, it's so secluded, that's where hunters are hunting, right? Right. That's probably where the scuffle between the two men started. He He killed Jay, you know, while she was tied up in the van that went back to the van. That's where the sexual assault happened and everything else. And then that's when, when he was done with her, while she was still zip tied and everything in the van, drove, dropped her body off, pushed her down the ravine, and then parked the van in the bus depot. That sounds the most yeah plausible, pl- plausible as to what happened route. And I think that is that is what makes sense only because there's a closer proximity between where her body was left and where the van was found. And then he, and then you know what? Like I mean, I it sounds crazy, but I wouldn't be surprised if after he dropped the van off, he walked a couple miles, and then uh, hey, uh, I'm looking for a ride. Yeah, seriously, it's almost like uh, one of those. Um, uh, I, I always refer to it, but that was the transient one. Remember um, when they thought that it was somebody that was getting off and on of train? Okay, this yes. was a long time ago. But it was one of the episodes we covered mm-hmm. where it was like this person committed the murder, then just jumped on a train, and then that was it, gone. Right, but that does happen. A it lot. does happen, right? So I mean, it's like it's possible that that even happened after he dropped that van off. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, as you can imagine, the Cook family, same as the Van Kylen Borgs, were devastated by the news of what happened to their beloved brother and son. And knowing that he died that way is, I cannot imagine, because to lose a loved one is unimaginable. But to know that they suffered, in both families' cases here, so horrifically before they died, no matter what the timeline is or the order of events or what happened, I mean, that's so hard. Yeah, and nobody deserves that to happen to them. You know what I mean? I mean, it's so, and it's disgusting in the manner that this happened, all right? I mean, how can you be good with that, right? That you right. know that that happened to your loved one. Now, the investigators had all the pieces of the puzzle. They just now had to try and arrange them in a way that would reveal to them the killer. All of the evidence at the scenes, the zip ties, And there were so many of them, the gloves, the gun, it all appeared to be premeditated. The killer had planned to do this or something similar to this because they brought all these items with them, including the dog collars and the twine. Both families were adamant that there was no one that they knew that would want to hurt these kids. They were good kids. And this was a ruthless and senseless crime. And investigators agreed with them because this crime occurred so far away from their home that it had to have been committed by a stranger, someone that targeted the couple and chose to attack. Another thing that happened during this case that will prove to be instrumental in the capturing of the monster who did this was the foresight had by the forensic analyst. I know you hear this all the time, (laughs) but DNA was new. And for real, DNA was new when this crime happened. 
Actually, the first ever DNA conviction happened just weeks before Tanya and Jay were murdered. And this was in England. A man had brutally raped and killed two girls, Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, three years apart. And an innocent 17-year-old boy was going to take the fall for it. Until DNA proved that it was 27-year-old Colin Pitchfork. Wow. And in the newspaper, it said some scientists think this is a breakthrough. Others are skeptical. Imagine that. Imagine that. Skeptical. <laughs> like, think about, like, how much we do now. I know. You know? I mean, we're going back and testing things from cold cases now. It, so yeah. talk about, you know, how good it is. Knowing that they were on the horizon of this new technology breakthrough in the world of forensics, they stored the semen samples from both the rape kit swabs and the section of pants that had semen on it in the freezer. Smart. They knew this was something that could really help the investigators. And the analyst, she wanted to preserve it all in the best way possible. But like I said, this was something that could not be tested yet. And the only way, the only reason they were able to determine that the DNA, um, the semen samples from the rape kit swabs and the pants didn't belong to Jay was that what they could do then was determine if the person is a secretor within their semen. Um, and that, that tells you whether, what blood type they are. And Jay didn't have that blood type that this person was. Okay. So that's how they were able to know that it wasn't Jay right away. This was a deviant crime. And the planning and malice made the investigators think that maybe this was not the first crime like this that had been committed. So they took a look at other violent offenders and sex offenders in the area of the crime scene. They spoke with all of them, but they didn't like any of them for the crime. And others had alibis. Investigators asked for information from the public, placing flyers from where the victims came from in Victoria to where their bodies had been discovered. Now, many leads came in, and law enforcement was overwhelmed by the sheer volume. Some of those leads were followed up on, and it's true that some of them never were or weren't looked into fully. But really, the investigators thought the whole time, there's no way that this person hasn't done something similar to this. Yeah, I mean, just based on what they found at that crime scene. I mean, he obviously is taking steps to not get caught, but at the same time, trying to show how confident how good he is to them like he thinks he's good is what i'm saying right Right. so it's interesting very very interesting Mm -hmm. so it seemed like there was kind of this stalemate in the investigation but then just weeks after the families had to put their loving children to rest something else horrible happened to them no no they were being taunted by the killer oh my god so now he's going to now their families now Oh, dude. Starting in December, letters were sent to the Cook and Van Kylenborg families. At first, they came weekly. Then they spread out and they were sent every other month, then around every three months. For years, the families were tormented by the twisted correspondence. They received letters and cards, and it every the killer painted this horrid and twisted tale of what the last moments on earth were like for their children at his sadistic hand. One letter read, Dearest Jay's father, or Gordon Cook, 
Greetings and salutations. Hallelujah, bloody Jesus. I am the happiest human being on planet Earth. In fact, I am on Michael Jackson's victory tour celebrating my victory over a Canadian man and man's in quotes. Jay Cook and a mouthy Canadian bitch, Tanya Van Kylenborg. Another read, Dear Mr. Cook, As someone who instinctively hates all Canadians, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to kill Jay and Tanya. Furthermore, I'll do it again if another opportunity presents itself. You ain't never going to catch me, and thanks for the money. I laughed as I wolfed down the stakes. I've eaten and enjoyed since the fateful evening and morning of November 18th and 19th. Sorry it was one of yours, but I've waited to venge myself on any Canadian. Then the man would send cards for holidays and the anniversary of the murders and special occasions. Sometimes he would send the card as if they were from Jay or Tanya themselves. Oh my God. For example... Bill Van Kylenborg received a Father's Day card in 1988. Words on the card's message were underlined, and it was signed in the man's handwriting, of course, a style that began to haunt them, with special love, Tanya. Wow. <laughs> this is torture yeah. for these families, yeah. right? Sent a Father's Day card oh, and signed it man. from his daughter. Oh, man. On the anniversary of the murders, the letter that was sent to the Van Kylen Borgs read, This is an important anniversary. Tanya and I want to remind you that we love you both very, very much. That is so sick and twisted. Well, the investigators were heartbroken and infuriated by the letters. They saw it as a cat and mouse game being played with the vulnerable families. But they weren't really convinced that these letters had come from a person that actually committed the murders. Because although they were disturbing, they didn't provide any more details or any details that weren't given in the newspaper. Okay. That's a, like a fair like judgment on that. But I I don't know. I think that if, I mean, there's a, still a possibility that he, this is him because Maybe he just doesn't want to give anything more to get himself caught, but he's brazen enough to at least send them and and try to taunt them. You right. know what I mean? Well, they still took it very seriously. Yeah, but as they just, you should. They wanted to make the families feel better. It was near impossible to track down where the letters were coming from because they were postmarked from various cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and Seattle. There were also no fingerprints found on the letters, but they were all kept as evidence in case later on they could be tested for DNA. The letters were also clearly written by the same person because the handwriting was the same. So they sent all the letters out for handwriting analysis. Now this was wonderful. They had the handwriting analysis down pat, but they didn't have anyone's handwriting to compare it with. So to fix that problem, law enforcement broadcasted the letters in hopes that someone would recognize the handwriting. Hundreds of tips poured in, but none of them led to any viable leads or information. It was frustrating, because despite there being leads and a lot of information collected from witnesses, the investigators were getting no closer to solving the crime. And sadly, this is where the investigation will remain for 15 years. That's the worst. 
That is the worst. Until 2003, when investigators who had been assigned to the case, along with the families, advocated to have the DNA samples tested from the crime scenes as DNA technology had obviously improved in leaps and bounds since 1987. Now, it was wonderful that the forensic analyst had the intelligence and forethought to freeze the samples back in 1987 because it made the case a good candidate for cold case DNA retesting. So if you remember, the male DNA that was taken from the semen samples during Tanya's autopsy and the samples on her pants, they called that person Individual A. So they knew that Jay had not been a contributor to the semen samples found. So they tested the samples and they were able to construct a DNA profile of the perpetrator. They checked that DNA profile against CODIS, a local, state, and national database of convicted offenders. This was a difficult blow. They checked the DNA profile against CODIS, a local, state, and national database of convicted offenders. But there was no match. This was a difficult blow because they assumed that someone who had committed such a horrific crime would have offended again. And they might have. They just were never convicted of it. Right. The positive thing was that individual A's profile was now in CODIS. So if anyone entered it into the system, they would be alerted. So at least they had that. Now, I know that this is going to seem like a lot of time. And I think it speaks to the harrowing statistic that if a crime isn't solved within the first 48 hours, it'll be a bitter fight to do so. But also the fact that we have such a backlog of DNA testing that needs to be done in this country. But in 2010, so seven years later, they were finally able to swab the letters that had been sent to the families. They were able to pick up a DNA sample. However, when compared to individual A, the person that had left the semen samples, it didn't match. All right. I mean, I feel like that's kind of good in a way because it's not, you know, now you know this person wasn't torturing, you know, you even further. Well, I mean, it could mean a lot of things. Right. It could mean that the killer had someone else deliver or send the letters. Like it could have been the DNA found on the letter could have been from like a mailman or something. Um, Or it could mean that they just didn't write them at all. They had to find this out. So and this profile, the, the profile that they had gotten from the letters was also not in CODIS. But in an effort to generate more leads, the investigators again broadcasted the letters to see if anyone would recognize the handwriting. And this time it worked. Yes. They received a tip from someone saying that they knew exactly who had written those letters. So the detectives went to speak with that person that had been identified. Right away, the man admitted that he had written the letters, but that he was not the killer. He apologized for doing so. They tested his DNA, and it was a match for the profile on the letters and not individual A. In the end, the man was mentally ill and homeless, and they determined that in no way was he a viable suspect. The detectives had heard of this before, people becoming obsessive and then inserting themselves into a case, but this was extreme and cruel. But this man was not the killer. 
So although this new revelation gave the family some answers, at least, as to who had been torturing them, the detectives were again back at square one. As the years passed on, leads would trickle in and the investigators would inform the families. And at this point, they described the unsolved murders of Jay and Tanya as open wounds. But then another DNA first happened that would impact this case. The apprehension of the Golden State Killer through genetic genealogy testing. A new forensic tool that was an offshoot of the 2013 boom of people using services and their DNA to explore their backgrounds and family history. Yeah, I know some people, you know, they consider that questionable, but, um, you know, I, I, there's some part of me that feels like it's a, such a good tool. And if we have it, if we're trying to look for somebody that, that committed such a heinous act as this, I mean, you have to use Why it. Why not? You have to. So what is cool about this database, collected from people all over the country, is that it doesn't have the perimeters that CODIS does. If a DNA profile is in CODIS, it's in there because it belongs to a person who committed a criminal act while was convicted of one. If a DNA profile is in the genealogy database, someone's just trying to find a third cousin or something. So that means a lot more people are in that database. Also, a matching CODIS is just that, an exact match. The forensic scientists and geneticists that can find familial DNA can then trace it back to who their suspect is in the genealogy database. So you can find people from a bigger pool with a smaller percentage. So your chances of finding someone in that pool are so much higher than that of CODIS. And the way that it works is they kind of call it this mix of high-tech, low-tech. So once they determine who that person's like third cousin is, then they're going to use public records to determine which third cousin is the most viable suspect, like who lived in the area at the time, what ages they were, things like that. That's smart. Very smart. And the capture of the Golden State Killer set the precedent that those data pools could be used to catch criminals. Now, like you said, this, of course, brings up a lot of questions of ethics and all of that. So what the forensic scientists working on the Cook Van Kylenborg case wanted to do was try to do the same thing that had been done in California, but they wanted to use companies that included in their waiver that they told the consumers that their DNA samples would be sent to law enforcement. Okay, I mean, that's helpful, I guess. One of those companies was GEDmatch. And what the forensic analyst was looking for when they were entering individual A's DNA profile into this GEDmatch database was looking for a match of 3% or higher. So 3% match indicates a second cousin. Okay. I didn't know that all this is yes. this is very good. And this is something that could ethically work because that leaves nothing to probability. Like that person is definitely your second cousin. So that's what they're going to put in. And guess what? What? They found a match. Did they? Okay. They did. All right. 
So they reverse engineered this person's family tree and it led them to a family that lived on the border of Snowamish, Snowamish, Snowamish County. Oh my God. I'm sorry, guys. And if you remember, that's the county in which Jay's body had been found. Okay. Interesting. The family had four children, three of them girls, one brother. The brother was 24 at the time of the murders. Wow. Okay. And his name was William Talbot. And guess where his home was? Seven miles from where they found Jay. That is incredible. That is incredible. Now, this was wild to investigators. Talbot's name had never come up anywhere in the investigation for 30 years. He would have gotten away with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, without breakthroughs in technology, yeah, he this would have never been solved. Talbot had no prior violent convictions, which was why he wasn't in CODIS. He was a truck driver who had never married. But to solidify that this was him, they needed to collect his DNA. Investigators tailed him for a long time, but finally they were able to collect a used coffee cup that he had discarded. They found that William Talbot was Individual A. He had done it. I am so happy that we got this guy. And in addition to this, in addition to his DNA being a match, his palm print also matched the one unknown print on the exterior of the van. Of course. Okay. Investigators theorized that he had subdued the couple by holding them at gunpoint. But the rest of their tragic end would only be speculation. But we know, based on the horror that Talbot left in his wake, that it was nothing short of a nightmare. He denies it still to this day, so we never got the story from him as to what happened. Um, we have a weird convoluted story in which he he says that Tanya wanted to have sex with him. Yeah, with zip ties all over her body. Yeah, and her boyfriend dead. Come on. In June of 2019, Talbot was found guilty of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder. He was later sentenced to life in prison. Talbot's appeals are bullshit and an attempt to paint the victims in a negative light, so I don't even want to discuss them. Just know that his appeals have been denied. Because the Golden State Killer trial was not wrapped until 2020, Talbot's conviction actually set the precedent for genealogy convictions in the United States. Very interesting. Okay. Finally, the families of Jay Cook and Tanya von Kylenborg could begin to close the wound that had been left open for 30 years. I am glad, at least, that they got closure, but I don't think anything could really help that family. I mean, that's just so, that is so hard It's to know what happened to your kids and to be able to put a face to the monster now, I think is almost, you know, just as worse. And what I think is odd here is that, and we've had this happen with another case that was solved through genealogy, is that the person was never caught or convicted of a similar crime afterwards. So it's like, have they gotten, have they continued doing this and gotten away with it? Or did they do it this one time, it satiated whatever sick, twisted desire they had, and that was enough? Like, 
did this man continue to offend? I feel like we need to learn that from him to learn from offenders like this so we can help solve and maybe prevent these cases. I mean, that's true, right? I mean, like his methods of how he was doing things definitely didn't seem like this was his first time. Right. And, and I'm just, this is not, you know, to be fact or anything. Yeah, we're just laymen here. I, I'm, but I'm just saying, I mean, it is very bizarre in the manner that he zip tied them and used gloves and, and tried to really right. separate where the victims were, where he dropped them off or like where he did them, where he brought the tr- uh, the van, him the fact that he tried to, uh, you know, take all the uh, the contents of the van and threw it behind the tavern. Like, I it's don't know. It's weird. I feel like the way in which he went about committing this crime showed that he's done it before and the ferocity in which he committed this crime showed me that he would do it again. I think so. I mean, I really do. I think that he he, he could definitely do it again. And if anything, he would have just gotten better at it. The only thing that he couldn't outrun was advancements in DNA technology. technology. Yeah. But if it, let's just say it never did improve, he could have done it again and not get caught, depending on the situation. Sure. Or if maybe he turned to victims that aren't going to be as focused on as, you know, two kids coming from a different country, loving families, he might have changed his victimology to make him harder to catch as well. Definitely. This was a heartbreaking case to cover. It really was. Yeah, this one was a little rough. <laughs> and before we go, I just want to say that one of the um, the sources that I used in this case, and it's a phenomenal book, is called The Forever Witness, and that's by Edward Humes. And he did a lot of amazing work. And I'm in the show notes. I'm putting a way that you can like purchase the book on Amazon or do it through Kindle, but it's a it's a really fascinating read and he he does a really good job covering this case. So I have that along with all of our sources in there. So if you're more interested in this case, you can read his book and I highly recommend it because it's a really good one. But before we go, we want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. So thank you so much to Pamela DaCosta, Shell Fergus, Jen, Anne Korkiakowski, Beth Stewart, Anna T, Kara Kesh, Jenny Martin, Kate the Great, which is so funny because in high school, my best that was my best friend's aim. Kate the Great. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, Riley Marie Burton, Chantel Daggett, Jasmine Roy, Karen Shoemaker, Sarah Myers, Crystal, Micah Vernow, April Riley, Ashley C. Lori Kaufman, Craig Holden, Malin, Carter Jewell, Leah, Maddie Gagnon, Jessica Ladwig, Louise Brulette, C. Sailor Up Their Pledge, Tanya, Sarah Brody, Sarah Body, and Rachel Meyer. If I said anyone's name wrong, you please correct me. Be nice about the counties in Washington, but your names definitely correct me (laughs) so I can say them again at a different time. All right, guys, that is the end. And I feel like this is a little different. So don't park next to vans, but a 1977 bronze Ford 
window van. True crime couple approved. That you can park next to. <laughs> park next to that one for sure. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.